2: Hi, this is Colin, and this is a show we did a few years back about music halls, specifically Shabu, which was a storied rock and blues venue, which has, like many music halls, disappeared from the landscape. In this case, a fire took it away. But we also wanted to talk about the legend of Thrall Hall, whose story is so complicated that, well, among other things, that I couldn't tell it. We had to have Katie Tularski, who since then has become... The biggest boss of all, the boss of all the bosses of all the bosses of radio. That may not be her exact title, but we decided to have her do her own special report on it. So yeah, the story of two places where people used to go and hear live music and dance the night away.
0: It's time. The audience is going nuts out there.
3: I... I can't go on. What do you mean you can't go on? This is Shabu. The joint is packed. Everybody's here to see Big Mama Wolf. I'm in a weird mood. What kind of mood? Well, I woke up this morning and nobody was in my business. I don't understand. I said I woke up this morning and nobody was in my business. Now I can't reach no ophthalmologist and I'm stuck here with true alternating strabismus.
0: That's an eye condition, right?
3: I woke up this morning, nobody was in my business. I said I woke up this morning, and nobody was in my business. Well, I can't reach no ophthalmologist, and I'm stuck here with true alternating strabismus.
0: I think you got the blues.
3: Do I? Are you sure? The whole time I've been touring as Big Mama Wolf, I've never actually had the blues. Please don't tell anybody that.
0: Well, you've got them now. You got them true, alternating, strabismus, no-ophthalmologist blues.
3: You're right. I'm going out there. Hello, Willow Mantic! I want to sing a song I wrote about an obscure optical problem in which the two eyes fail to maintain proper alignment. But first, let me introduce today's show, the story of two remarkable music and dance halls, one gone and the other frozen in time. And now he got fired by Aerosmith for using Joe Perry's hairbrush, Colin McEnroe.
2: Actually, Aerosmith was one of the bands that played the Shabu Inn in Willimantic during its wild 11-year or so run. And it was when Aerosmith was very new. People didn't know much about it. We'll tell you more of that story later on in this show. For the first segment, we're going to do something we don't do very often. I'm going to kind of step out of the studio and let somebody else tell the story. Earlier this summer... Betsy Kaplan, Kayon Wolf, and Katie Tularski went out to this remarkable facility called Thrall Hall in East Windsor. The story was so colorful and so different, we decided to tell it a different way. Katie's the executive producer here at WNPR, but... You know, like Liam Neeson, she has certain skills and she's a great uh, audio documentary uh, writer and producer. So uh, she took this story over. Uh, she's going to tell it. I would recommend if you're near a computer while it's going, uh, if you can get on wnpr.org. dot org right now and look at the photos taken by Kion Wolfe out there, um, you'll get kind of a sense. It's almost impossible to convey what Thrall Hall is like, uh, even with a really good radio documentary. So for the next few minutes, anyway, uh, Katie will be telling the story. I'll be coming by, back afterwards to tell the story of Shabu Inn with David Foster, uh, the story of rock and roll and jazz and blues in a very obscure corner of Connecticut. But here goes Katie.
4: You might say that the two great loves of Edwin Thrall's life were his wife Flicka and his daughter Jeanette, his only child who he wanted to protect.
5: She was a cheerleader and she was into acrobatics. It's just like throwing these young people to the wolves. When they got out of high school, with was nothing except beer parties
4: out in the woods somewhere. So he built his third great love, a square dance hall, a place where his wife could dance and his daughter could be safe. Well, I want a place to call square dancing. I
5: wanted a place for Jeanette to have her friends and give them recreation that we thought was civilized and moral and helpful and would last them as long as they lived.
4: That's Ed Thrall from a 1997 documentary. He was an old-fashioned, patriotic man who came from a family of hard-working potato farmers. His daughter Jeanette says he was very generous and a true Yankee.
6: Through and through, heart of gold, he would help anybody. He took in every stray cat there was. We had people living in campers or up in our in the apartment. You know, he always helped people. So he was, had a heart of gold, but he also had a very strong, stubborn streak.
4: Thrall died in 2003 at the age of 84, and he was stubborn till the end. Not long before his death, he spent six months in prison for getting into a shootout with local police. And it wasn't the first time that happened. He shot a gun into the air and at the tire of a cop car. He would say he didn't intend to hurt anyone, but to protect what he considered his, the 20,000 square foot dance hall, the building that he spent 10 years meticulously constructing.
6: He had a very strong sense that his property was his, to do with what he wanted. And when he first started, when he first got the permit, there was no zoning, but then zoning was put into place and he didn't like it. <laughs> and the town and he started
4: to butt heads and it got very ugly. When Jeanette remembers her dad today, it's mostly with pride for what he's accomplished. But when she reflects on the ugly days, there's sadness too. Remembering how hard he fought for what he built and how that fight changed him.
6: It got lost um, over time, what he was really fighting for, because it ended up being the constitutional fight and property rights, and the issue got so much bigger than the building itself that I think it just took on a life of its own, and the building was sort of secondary at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and he would have, you know, he would have... he threatened to burn it down when the town foreclosed Uh, he didn't thankfully but you know at that point his principles were more important than the structure
4: it's hard to know where to start his story Ed Thrall in his tri-cornered hat, the hall, built from Hartford's historical remnants, or Thrall's only child dealing with her dad's complicated legacy and still trying to make his dream a reality. Today, the property is only slightly different than it was when Thrall was alive, at the end of a long, winding driveway, across from the family's old potato farm, an L-shaped structure covered in black, brown, and purple shingles, a long hall with a four-story tower on one side, It looks unfinished, with scaffolding, there's a long stovepipe, and strategically placed windows. He did it mostly
6: by himself.
4: There were certain people that would come over
6: and help him with the brownstone that you'll see downstairs, and he had a crane help put up the trusses. Primarily he did it by himself, with his tractor.
0: This is a a project and a half. Let's, let's go in.
4: <laughs> Jeanette gave us a tour with her husband, Doug, and Howard Epstein, a professor of engineering at UConn. This would be the Epstein has been involved with the building for years, facilitating student projects and advising Jeanette and Doug.
0: I just love what Ed does with everything. See what these things are? Sewing machine bases from the Singer sewing machine plant that was demolished as the I-84 corridor went through. And just all sorts of farm equipment everywhere. Probably if you sold this thing for parts, it'd be worth millions.
4: You could say Ed Thrall was in the right place at the right time. Old buildings in Hartford and many surrounding towns were being dismantled to make room for highways. He helped demolish many of these buildings and collected what was considered junk.
0: He said sometimes he, in lieu of being paid, he says, can I have that? Um, He was called the old stone picker.
6: Then he got into Hartford and started seeing everything being demolished, and he had this farm, so he said, oh, that can't, we can't destroy that, we can't throw that to the dump." so he started bringing everything home, and at some point he said, what am I going to do with all this?
4: And that's when he decided to build this, and he just started building. A counter from Spinella's spaghetti factory, a spiral staircase from the foyer of Landers, Frary, and Clark, floor trusses from the Billings and Spencer building, brownstone, granite, and a railing from the Hubline Hotel,
0: But it was curved, so Ed ran over it with his tractor and straightened it out as much as he could But you still see a little bit of a wave in it.
4: He even recovered a door from a speakeasy at the Guard Hotel covered in messages written with lipstick.
0: Ed started with the the fireplace. That was the first thing that he built. Well, this is the top of it. But it's it's about 40 feet tall, this masonry thing. You're looking at the second floor of it, but uh, that was all that there was, and then the building was built around it.
4: Thrall's wife designed the tiled floors with different patterns of colors to correspond with more than 200 dancer positions. He worked on the structure between 1968 and 1978.
0: Shall we go down the spiral staircase yeah. so see
4: what's happening underneath? <laughs> the enormous basement has a fountain, a meeting room, and a rundown kitchen. So this is where people would eat, the meeting, and then dancing upstairs. So.
6: That's how he envisioned it.
4: On the opposite end, the stairs lead back up to a stage and a maze of rooms winding up the structure.
0: It, you know, it's like one of those dreams that you have. You just open another door and yeah. more and it just, just keeps going on and on and on.
4: What Ed Thrall hoped would eventually be a general store, an apartment, and the platform of a giant slide for kids. Well,
6: they, were, they would square dance at the Storton Village um, in the Big E. And, of course, I was always there by myself, and so I would go on the slide. <laughs> so he was going to bring one here to me, being the spoiled-only child, right?
4: <laughs> but he thought it was a good idea to entertain the kids. The dance hall itself is 70 feet wide, lined with benches.
0: The floor is, is bouncy. It's not quite as much when you get to the middle, but as received with what the support was,
4: the support is a whole lot of truck tires. Tires connected by hoses so that the pressure can be adjusted depending on how much bounce you want.
6: The bounce is pretty good when you have 50 dancers. <laughs> During one of the weddings, we they were all dancing and we were underneath and it was like, whoa, oh. <laughs> it really works. <laughs> so.
4: Jeanette and her husband got married at the hall 30 years ago, one of a few private weddings and events they've had on the property. They aren't allowed to rent it out now because it isn't up to code. It's a problem that her dad dealt with from the time the hall was being built to his death. At one point, the town put an injunction on the property to keep Ed Thrall from hosting events, which they thought were too dangerous. He, of course, didn't listen and ended up in prison for 50 days. It started probably
6: getting ugly while well, I was in college, so around 21,
4: and it went till till my dad died in. <laughs> no, probably till two thousand and two. He held a few events some where the police actually showed up to dance, but he couldn't shake the bad relations between him and the town. And it wasn't only the police shootouts that led to a rift in his own family. The dark stain on Ed Thrall's legacy came when he invited the KKK to town to have a rally on his property. I guess it hit its crescendo in eighty six
6: we had we were. We got married, and we're living in Atlanta. And we decided to move home. I'm not sure I can tell the story.
7: Yeah, it was right about the time our, our daughter was born, and we very much disagreed with her father. Her father, we believe, was very much misled, and we tried to explain that to him that this, you know, this is not what you think, and this will not be interpreted as you think. And uh, it was a little more strongly stated than that. And, short story, he disowned us. us.
4: Jeanette and Doug said that this period in their dad's life is why they shy away from interviews. They said that the KKK misrepresented themselves to Ed, posing as a property rights group. They said that the group took advantage of Ed's anger towards the town and used it for their own publicity. In interviews, Ethrall said that the organization was strictly business people and not racist, despite the fact they held a cross burning on his yard. Whatever the case, it cost Ed Thrall a lot of credibility in the community.
7: And it wasn't till after the baby was born that we reconnected. Every time this story is told, that's obviously the big flash that shows up that says, ah, you know, here's where that happened, and it's it's been misrepresented.
5: I decided we are going to re-roof it, whether it was town property or, I mean, I knew it was mine, but the town claimed they owned it. We needed a crane to put the materials up there, the pallets of roll roofing and cement, heavy stuff that I not man enough to carry up several flights of stairs. The crane was putting it up when part of the town maintenance crew saw us up there and called a selectman who called the police who came and demanded we were criminal trespassing on town property. I happened to have a good 12 gauge shotgun and I went in and got that where it was hidden and I let it go off which set off the incident.
6: The last time was when he was on the roof with the gun and shot at the police cruisers. He didn't shoot at the police because if he wanted to kill the police he would have killed them but he shot at the cruisers to try to get them to leave him alone and um, he was trespassing because it wasn't his property at that point and he had unlawful shooting all of the above and he was convicted and went to jail for six months and he was 78 years old at that point
4: while he was in prison Jeanette and Doug made an arrangement with the town which had foreclosed on the property to buy it back for $100,000 you
7: know we the reason we bought it was so that he could come over here and I think it probably knocked the stuffing out of him that he the fight was what kept him going too
4: he,
6: he was
7: mad, that. you know.
6: We were never quite sure if he was glad we did that or not. If, you, if he was glad, glad that you bought it? Yeah.
5: What was he thought that was giving
6: in. The alternative was the town would have sold it to somebody who would have probably developed it. And, but to him, it was us giving in by purchasing it.
7: The way his court case went, he couldn't walk on the property after he got out of jail, or he would be back in for three years.
4: When Ed got out of jail, he was tired and weak, essentially bedbound until he died six years later. During that time, he only took a few more trips across the street to his dance hall.
5: All my life, I never felt that I had control of my life. You got no, no resistance, no rights. You're just a slave. Do as you're told. Or they throw you in prison, or they take your property.
4: Jeanette and Doug were left to repair his legacy, to finish the hall and make it into something.
5: He
7: was trying to explain to me how he how to finish it. You know. As <laughs> yes, he was saying, well, you know, you just got to put some big lumber down there and cover it with foam and battleship linoleum and you know, he had a whole plan, you know, how <laughs> the thing was going to come till
6: together until the day he died. I mean, he, he and gone. he would tell us, yeah, everything you that had to be done. do would do.
7: talk about this like you're going to finish this. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> after I get home from work.
6: <laughs> <laughs> and what we'd love yeah. to do with it is make an event facility because it's a great place for a party and people love to come here and it's, you know, it's big, you can have large groups and um, so we'd love to be able to get through the zoning and the, so the CO and, all that, yeah, right. and have it be a legal structure and have it be where people can come because it really is a place people should come and, and enjoy. It should be a destination point point. and I think it would be good for the town
4: too. Jeanette, Doug, and Howard plan to keep working at it until Edwin Thrall's Hall is open to the public. I mean, there's so many things you could have. You could have plays, you can have weddings,
6: you can have concerts, have concerts uh, a music venue would be fun, class uh, reunions. Class reunions. reunions. All
4: stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and his idea for this place was to would be square dancing. And
2: that was executive producer Katie Tularski uh, with the story of Thrall Hall. To see photos by Kyone Wolf, visit our website, wnpr.org. Thanks to Doug Cohen for use of his archival audio. We'll be back after this with David Foster and the story of Shabu. So it's music hall day here in our lives. That was one kind of music hall story. I have to say, talking about music halls, I mean, for me, grow, being a person of a certain age and growing up in Connecticut, now you say music hall, I say Shabu, Shaboo, it was in eastern Connecticut. And I've got a really comprehensive list of everybody who played at Shabu. And there were certain acts that kind of were known as Shaboo acts. Maybe James Montgomery Band, James Cotton Band, NRBQ, Jonathan Edwards, Bonnie Raitt, Roomful of Blues, Orleans, B.B. King, Muddy Waters, Freddie King, Buddy. Guy, Junior Wells, every blues act you can think of played there, every rock act, Joe Cocker, Ed, Eric Burden, Dr. John, David Crosby, Todd Rundgren uh, as things went along, as we headed sort of more towards the 80s, ACDC, The Police, Elvis Costello, Journey, Hall and Oates, The Talking Heads, Iggy, Iggy Pop Television, uh, The Cars, The Ramones, everybody from basically Count Basie to The Ramones uh, played Shabu at some point or other. So uh, David Foster, the guy who made, made that all happen, starting at the tender age of 19, uh, is here in studio with us. Explain what this was for people who have no idea, who've never heard of Shabu. First of all, the building was well over 100 years old by the time you got your hands on it, right? It was an old sort of thread mill from the, the Thread City days. of 1800s, yeah. and
1: uh, it was a, a thread mill. It, it was uh, uh, 6,400 square feet per floor. Uh, one of the nice things about it, it was all wood, so it had a really nice sound to it.
2: The other thing it was was it wasn't – it was really kind of in the middle of nowhere. I mean not that Willimantic is the middle of nowhere and not that it was really exactly in Willimantic anyway, right? It was technically in Mansfield.
1: It was in Mansfield. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But I mean it wasn't near a big city or – so how did you get everybody to come there? How did all of these acts wind up in, in this place?
1: Well, I mean I think we were, we were pretty lucky as we were planning to open it in the summer and doing all our work and – we went up to Boston University to see James Montgomery for the first time. Mm. And lo and behold, who was the opening act? It happened to be Aerosmith. Mm. So we got to meet both James and Aerosmith that night. Mm. And I negotiated a booking with Stevie Tyler at the side of the stage in between a fight that he got into with a patron. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, we told him we were going to open this club in Connecticut and we had hotel rooms up above and that we could also put them up and would they be interested in coming to play for a few nights? Mm-hmm. He goes, well, yeah, we'd love to play there. And I said, well, you know, um, we've got like $700 for the week for you if you'd like to <laughs> like to play. And, and he said, how about $1,000? He said, no, we, we can't really do that because we only charge a dollar to get in and we buy everybody their first drink. Mm-hmm. But we'll put you up and we'll also give you a bottle of gin every night, the band. <laughs> so the deal was cut mm-hmm. and they ended up playing the second week we were open.
2: Wow, and at that time aerosmith w-
1: wasn 't necessarily a name to conjure with, right I mean no, they were unsigned, and they were basically doing rolling stone covers mm-hmm. and showed up in a school bus mm-hmm. they, That was how their mode of transportation was
2: i 'm guessing having Aerosmith stay overnight even then in any facility that you 're nominally in charge of. Is something of a risk. I mean, like, what was what did the upstairs look like
1: after well, they stayed? There? <laughs> I, I, it was sort of like who do the hoodoo man. I mean, we, we don't know if we were more scared or they were more scared when they saw the upstairs of the so, <laughs> so it was a toss up in the end. But yeah. uh, you know, but they they went for it. They they yeah. were very happy and they liked it, and uh, and we had a good time with them. Our bartenders were all female at the time, so it was their first. Uh, how would you say? Uh, their first meeting was spandex pants <laughs> and the whole band was in colored spandex so they were going boy they're kind of strange with the spandex you know But and the shag haircuts but.
2: okay we've got a lot of artists to talk about a lot of stories to tell here but just to sort of give you a sense of how Shaboo sounded it Fortunately, a lot of recordings were kind of made right off the soundboard. So one of the bands that I mentioned that was really kind of a Shabu band was the Fabulous Rhinestones and once again, if you were sort of from the northeast at that time, you knew about the Fabulous Rhinestones, uh, an amazing amazing band. And so let's let's just hear them uh, getting into their act one night at Shabu. This night is for
4: you, Shabu. I guess the rhinestones have played here at the Shabu about 100 or 200 times, I don't know,
8: over the last eight years. It's a wonderful thing for us that we can just keep doing it. People keep showing up, taking pictures of us. It's great. It's really great. It's good to see each and every one of you. We're going to send this out to all y'all. That's right. It's just my way of you how you.
2: All right.
1: That's the rhinestones.
2: And so uh, as you were doing this, David, first of all, you were 19, right?
1: I was 19 when we first opened.
2: And, and how, how did this facility come into the possession of your family how did you happen to have this place and decide it was going to be a music hall
1: well we were we we're very chummy with the john family from the stores area and they their parents had a, a f- famous night eatery uh late night yukon spot called lose mm-hmm. and they had funny named sandwiches like the stop sandwich and the you know all these crazy sandwiches and all the yukon students would frequent the place late at night after mm-hmm. studying or after a game or and we we just became very close friends with them, and we all loved music, and we wanted to have our own nightclub. So what we did is uh, we picked that particular place because the man that owned it was an old French-Canadian man, and he was really kind of a real character, mm-hmm. more so of a character, I would say, than our first segment of the show. <laughs> okay, And his name was Wellie Gamache. He was an old French-Canadian man, and, you know he figured that the only person he could ever sell it to was kids because you know the, the building was a little bit challenged with but there there were things that he did to it like he would put a wall up in the middle of a window <laughs> stuff like that so you know it would be funny the laurel and hardy thing where one guy's opening the window and the other guy on the other side's closing it <laughs> <laughs> but anyway uh, so we bought we we borrowed the money from the vendors the the people that would that had the cigarette machines and the pinball things—that mm-hmm. those were the banks in the days, uh, in those days for bars because mm-hmm. banks would never lend money to bars; it was mm-hmm. too risky. So we actually talked them into lending us thirty-five thousand mm-hmm. dollars to buy the place. Mm-hmm. Um, we had five thousand left of the thirty-five for decor for decorating the club. Mm-hmm. So what we did is uh, we bought a whole bunch of black paint and painted the ceiling black. A whole bunch, a whole bunch of red paint. To paint the walls red, mm-hmm. and we went to the, the Brandwex Brand Rex Wire Cable Company in Willimantic and begged and borrowed for a hundred spools, mm-hmm. and those became our tables, the spools. <laughs> then we went up to the attic and took the floorboards out of the attic to put them on the tops of the spindles, and then stained everything. And then we just bought red light bulbs for mm-hmm. the ceiling, instant atmosphere. It looked great. We, we you know we opened October twenty second, nineteen seventy one, and you know, it was. We just did this air camp air campaign with a private plane over the f- football games at UConn, saying Shabu is coming, Shabu is coming. But we didn't say anything more than that. Anyway, the final week before we opened, we let them know it was a nightclub. We opened to two nights of sellouts, and then the second week Aerosmith was there, the third week James Montgomery was there, and then and then the Blues of uh, 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 a man named Dick Waterman who managed Bonnie Raitt called us and hooked us up with all the blues greats. And we used the blues musicians to develop the audience there. Because mm. in the first few weeks, it was just 500 kids in a room, not even knowing how to be a, really an audience. They were just it was like a meat market.
2: And a lot of those blues musicians, I would assume also, were they were just really committed to playing a lot, playing every night, You know, playing as much as they can. Well, they but, were booked
1: by the week. You'd yeah. book them by the week, and we had the luxury of the rooms upstairs <laughs> so we could put them up. But they, but what what was key is they put on this show where mm-hmm. they made the audience be an audience, mm-hmm. you know. So you couldn't help but become an audience. Yeah. And what we do is we booked the first four or five months of just, by the week, blues legends. Mm-hmm. The John Lee Hookers, the Howlin' Wolves, mm-hmm. the Buddy Guy and Junior Wells, uh, Freddie King, uh, Muddy Waters, James Cotton Bluesman. And these guys were just phenomenal. I mean, so, I mean, it was a real show, and lo and behold, an audience has been developed.
2: Um, let's actually, I'm going to cross Wolfie up a little bit here. Uh, since you mentioned Muddy Waters, uh, we've got a clip, and this is kind of an interesting thing. I don't know at what point, uh, David, this kind of thing started to happen. But I think uh, in this clip you're going to hear Muddy singing, but he's also uh, trying to get used to you to sing and uh, you're on the soundboard. Uh, let's see if we can uh, hear that. Oh, was trapped, yeah. yeah.
6: We're going to have David one on the Song first. Why well, get him together? I started doing
1: another blues for you until David gets here. Hey, Muddy, hey, Muddy, I'm on the board here. i i There's no way I can get to the
5: stage. I'm on the board, so I'll, I'll just sing it from the board, all right? All
1: right,
8: come oh. on down. Every day, every day I have the blues.
2: I'm sure David wants us to play that whole thing but then we won't have any time to talk. So, so how did that happen? I mean, there's a lot of people who own music halls but they don't sing with Muddy Waters. How well, did that happen?
1: They've somebody had hipped t- him, you know, and said that, you know, the, the club owner can sing. Mm. And, you know, I was so lucky because, uh, you know, they told everybody, all the blues guys. So I got to sing with Willie Dixon, I got to sing with <laughs> Muddy Waters, I got to sing with Alvin Wolf, and T-Bone and, you know, Cotton and B.B. and So, I mean, I got like a, you know, a really major education. In yeah, blues singing. You went to Blues University. Right. So, I mean, I was the luckiest guy in the whole world, and, you know, to this day, I'm still, you know, I shiver just thinking about
2: it. We should but, say, I mean, he went on, uh, David went on to start uh, the Shabu All-Stars, uh, which are now the Mohegan Sun, Shabu All-Stars. He's yeah. also got a new uh, a release coming out uh, called The Real Thing as D.A. Foster, because it's very confusing. You're David Foster, and then there's this other David Foster guy.
1: Right. Uh, the famous guy made it obvious where, because this one's going to get released, you know, through the whole country and all of Europe. So I have a real record deal. Finally, um,
2: mm-hmm. so we got to talk about some of these acts, and some of these acts we come in, and you know, you don't really know what to expect. They don't know what to expect. Uh, I, I think one of the great stories is uh, is of Tom Waits uh, doing two different dates, uh, not too far apart, at, at Shabu. Before I have you tell those uh, stories of those two performances, uh, I, I think we've got the the Tom Waits song anyway that, that sets up these anecdotes.
8: Piano has been drinking My necktie is asleep And the combo went back to New York The jukebox says to take a leak And the carpet needs a
2: haircut all right, so that's Tom. You booked book Tom the first time, and and basically, what happens? We were There's, early.
1: We were too early on him. Yeah. Uh, record came out, uh, you know, uh, a little bit late for uh, when our date matured. So, mm-hmm. what happened was there was about twenty five people there the first night, mm-hmm. and what happened is about halfway through the show, we had we had shibu animals. We had cats. We had dogs, and the shibui cat just decided to prance up to the stage and jump on the piano while Tom was deep in song and tom just was wow he was just enamored so anyway at the end of the night he came upstairs to do settlement and uh you know i was thanking him and sort of apologizing saying you know sorry there wasn't a lot of people here i think we're a little early and he goes no 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 man this this place is heavy man i uh who's the cat you know, <laughs> you know i mean so you know, I just said, "Well, would you ever consider coming back?" Like at the end of the tour, because I think we could really, you know, do a much better job. He goes, "Yeah, man, this place is great, man. I can't wait to come back. I'll tell, them, I'll tell everybody to book me back here." Anyway, we called the agency the next morning, told them what had happened. They gave us a night at the tail end of the run. Mm-hmm. He came back, sold a thousand seats, mm-hmm. sold it out cold. And at the end of that night, of course, we're back in the office again doing settlement. I go. A little bit better this time, huh, Tom? The, he must have really enjoyed it tonight. He goes, nah. He goes, I dug it the first time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, these are the kind of characters that I would deal with on a n- normal basis, you know. So, yeah. And he was just, he was swell. He, he was liked
2: the 25 bad. people and the
1: cat. Yeah, he loved it. Yeah. I mean, he just loved it. And chain smoked through the
2: coals. Oh, street. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, uh, when settling up, how did that work? How did, uh, in other words, what did a performer take away from Shabu? Did you? How, what was your typical arrangement? Usually,
1: they were guarantees versus percentages. You yeah. know, in in most situations, because they were all represented by real major theatrical booking companies in either New York or Los Angeles. So, you know, I mean, sometimes we we had we took it on the chin. We might be a little early, but I think in Tom White's case, I think we got a pretty good buy because we were early on them. You yeah. Know, but. Uh, you know, uh, We always put a percentage clause in, so if business came, the artist was rewarded, mm-hmm. always. So.
2: Um, and yeah, this whole idea of being early is interesting, too, because you were, you were early with, with some of these groups. I mean, the police came and played there on the very for- first tour when, A, nobody knew who the police were. It <laughs> was, was
1: their second date in America. Second date in America
2: yeah. and the World Series, right?
1: And it happened to be the World <laughs> Series the same night, and it was a Monday night. Yeah. So we had everything working against us. But what had happened was uh, the drummer's brother was the agent uh, for the police. Mm-hmm. So uh, Ian Copeland, a famous booking agent, he called me and said, look, uh, I want you to play this band next Monday called The Police. We were supposed to play Brown University. Something happened. I got to put him somewhere. <laughs> I go, oh, Ian, come on. I mean, it's the World Series Monday night. I haven't had a day off in 12 days. We've had major shows here. And he went, Lefty, do you want to do Iggy Pop? I went, "Yeah." He goes, "Well, you're going to work Monday." night. <laughs> he goes, "I don't care. I don't care. Just look. We charge a dollar to get in, give him the door. I just got to put him somewhere. Mm-hmm. Do me the favor." I went, well. And that's what our role was. Do agents favors. Our job was to break artists and prepare them mm-hmm. for Jimmy Cobbler. That's what our job was.
2: <laughs> and did, so did you in fact is it true that you told Sting not to start playing until the World Series was over? The game Well, was over? what we
1: said is, looks, you know, Sting was pacing in the bar room and there was the 7th inning tie game World Series. <laughs> And you know there was twelve of us that they were watching the World Series. It was a Monday night, so you know this guy's pacing, and we're going. Hey, what's your name? He goes Sting. I went Sting. Look, uh, we're gonna we'll go watch your band play tonight. You want a hamburger or something? You know, well, well, we'll you want some food. We'll, but as soon as the game's over, you can play your set. We'll all go in and watch watch you play your set. And he was not happy. He was not happy at all. So anyway, uh, the World Series comes to an end. We go in the back room. And all of a sudden, he starts singing, you know, Roxanne. We go, hey, this guy sounds good, man. You know, we listen to the whole set. As soon as he left, like two days later, I turn on WHCN. Roxanne hits the airwaves, mm-hmm. goes into heavy rotation everywhere. Yeah. So we were just early, and then the second play is when you saw him when they w- when they graduated to the two thousand, three thousand yeah. capacity room, and they went to the West Hartford Musical
2: Dexter Avenue, wherever that right. place was. Yeah. Yeah. So. A lot of artists are really are nice people, and for example, you guys had a great relationship with Bonnie Raitt, right? To this day, she, she's playing someplace else. Jill. She
1: was absolutely wonderful to us, and she understood our plight. She knew we were challenged as far as you know survival. We were top heavy There's five partners, and and we were wholesaling all the music to the young people. So there wasn't a lot of profit there. So she she was just very bright, and she wanted to do anything she could to keep us going. So every time we got in trouble, we'd call Waterman in Boston and go, Dick, we need help. You know, the oil tank's almost empty. Know it, it's f- <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's freezing. So anyway, he, he'd look at the calendar. and goes, how's, you know, next Thursday? We're, yeah, we can we can do some radio. We'll fill it up. Mm-hmm. And, and he'd send us a contract for a straight 80%. And she never charged us a guarantee. Mm-hmm. She must have played 50 nights, and every night was a sellout. up mm. You know, I remember one night we did Bonnie Raitt and Little Feet, and it was a $2 ticket.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's outrageous. Little George still there? Uh, No. No, after Little George. All right. Well, still still pretty good. All right. Let's take a break. Bonnie Raitt, by the way, we should say she's still, if she's playing... Oakdale or whatever they call it these days, you know, we'll ask if anybody out there remember Shabu or dedicate a song to you or something. I mean, that's still big in her heart, I think, in well, you know, the Shabu days.
1: To this day, she still remembers us and, and we love her for it.
2: All know. right. So she was a sweetheart. When we come back, we might talk about one or two slightly more difficult uh, artists uh, to deal with. Uh, but as we're going out here, um, there have been songs sung about Shabu. Uh, this one doesn't mention Shabu, but you listen to it, you know absolutely know. It's by Elvin Bishop. It's called Juke Joint Jump, and it's about Shabu. Oh, oh,
3: on this isthmus with true alternating strabismus. I ain't seen my optician since a week before Christmas. Now I got the blues about how bad my blues song is. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Josh Nalea and Nia Tyler. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin, Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Muddy Waters. And now... Back to Colin.
2: Right now, the party's here. Uh, David Foster uh, is here uh, telling stories of Shabu. So Bonnie Raitt, a sweetheart, uh, always took care of you guys
1: any way she could.
2: Uh, Some people are a little bit more difficult. So you did book Miles Davis. Oh, man. Oh, God. (laughs) So tell that story.
1: Booked him for a week. Uh, Actually, it was done through the jazz workshop in Boston. Uh, The famous talent buyer and promoter, Freddie Taylor, helped us achieve that major goal in our Mm -hmm. jazz history. Uh, he played for a week. It was a Wednesday through Saturday. Opening night shows up Wednesday night, and all of a sudden I get a call at 6 o'clock. Uh, Miles is over at the Willamette Inn, about just you know 400 yards from the club. Miles is not going to play tonight. His hairdresser didn't show up. That was the cancellation. <laughs> so I was just, you know, I, I look outside. There's a line of 350 people out to the street. We hadn't even opened the doors yet. anywhere there. So I run to my office, and I call Freddie Taylor in Boston. I go, Freddie, what is going on? We were just called by Miles from the hotel, and he's canceling opening night because his hairdresser can't work on his hair. (laughs) What am I to do? I got 300 people standing outside ready to come in. They've come from all over the state. He goes, Lefty, just go out there and tell them the truth. They're used to the antics of Miles. And let them know they'll honor their tickets any one of the last three days. I said, Well, I can't. The last two days are sold out. Well, that you'll honor the tickets tomorrow night? You got room tomorrow night to honor these? I go, Yeah, where's well, room for tomorrow night? He goes, Just to tell them the truth. I go, They're going to stone me. He <laughs> goes, I promise they won't. They're used to it with Miles. Anyway, I told them the exact truth. Nobody stoned me. Nobody threw anything at me. Nobody booed. They just turned around, went back to their cars, got in their cars, and drove away. <laughs> I told them the tickets would be honored tomorrow night. Anyway, the second night rolls around, and full house, just sold out. I mean, he never faced the crowd. He played with his back to the crowd the entire three days that were left. And he called for advances for money every three hours from the hotel. (laughs) Now, the second night, uh, when he finally appeared, he didn't have a car. He didn't have anything, Mm -hmm. so he, he needed a ride back to the hotel. At the time, I had a Chevy Impala with a bench seat, you know, so I figured I'd be a gentleman as the promoter and open the door for Mr. Davis to get in. He walked right by the front door and gets into the back seat. <laughs> so it was sort of like, you know, uh, white boy, <laughs> you're gonna take me, you're gonna show for me over to the hotel. <laughs> anyway, it happened to be my birthday. I bring him over to the motor and it takes about three minutes to ride. And he's mumbling in the back seat and does not get out of the car when we get there. So I figured it out after about 15 seconds, he's waiting for me to go open the door. Right. So finally, I you know, I don't want to spend the night here. This is the longest <laughs> 20 seconds of my life. I get out of the car, and then I go open the door, and I'm pretty frustrated at that point. And he puts his hand out to shake my hands. And a bell went off in my head, Colin, and I just went, that'll be $20. You know, if you want to treat me like that, you're going to pay me. So he went right into his pocket, gave me a $20 bill, <laughs> and I felt much better. Then I went back to my birthday party, had cake. and But, I mean, that's the kind of... Negative stuff. I mean, sometimes they were tough.
2: I love the playing with his back to the audience. You know, Laura Nero, who played Shabu, she would occasionally do that too. She would, mm-hmm. but I think for a different reason. I think she was too anxious to look at the audience or something
1: like and that. She was yeah. so shy. Yeah, yeah, she was just.
2: Uh, we got a lot of calls here. Uh, let's uh, talk to Tom in Colchester, Find out what happened to him at Shabu. Hi, Tom. You're on the air.
7: Um, I went there, you know, to see Rick Derringer, a rock and roll hoochie type of guy. Anyway, I walked in with my 16 year old teeny bopper girlfriend, uh, you know, drinking, which is 18 back then. And there was, like, one table left, and it was in front of this, like, refrigerator-sized speaker, which was big for the time. So I sat down, and we enjoyed ourselves. And afterwards, he came over and sat down next to us and said, Anybody crazy enough to sit in front of this speaker? Got to be a friend of mine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So how's your hearing today, Tom?
7: (laughs) When I heard you a shaboo, my ears started ringing again
2: right. <laughs> just yeah just a, a pavlovian response all right it's funny because i was going down this list with david and i was saying you know there's some names here that i haven't thought about in 20 25 years and one of them uh was an act that or a, a performer who i mean really i've not thought about this guy in 25 years but karen has been thinking about him apparently so karen tell us your Shabu story
3: well, I remember standing in the rain for like an hour in line for somebody that nobody else ever seemed to hear about. I'm surprised it was a line. And it happened to be Jimmy Sears. And I don't think that very many people even know the man existed.
2: I said that when you came in, David. I said, Jimmy Sears, when was the last time anybody thought of him? But well, you thought he was really talented. We,
1: we yeah. very much need to thank the folks at WHC. And they had a very, very open playbook in those days. And they broke Jimmy Sears.
2: Here's uh, Chris in Warren. Hi, Chris. You're on the hey, air.
1: Yeah, I just thought you, you actually, after this last break, touched on what I wanted to touch on, which is not all these guys, the, the popular guys, that everybody knows big rock guys, but there was world music. There was jazz. John McLaughlin played there. Right. We see John McLaughlin. Weather Report played, you know, the 830 record, the heavy weather record. Right. It was just, we saw world music in
0: front of our face, 10 feet away from us. Right.
1: Glad to. We were guilty that night because it was a four dollar ticket. We t- felt terrible. It was we felt like <laughs> capitalist pigs because it was four dollars to get in.
2: I know. I was. I was actually looking at old posters and looking at those three dollar tickets and two dollar tickets, and I was thinking, okay, that's <laughs> that's something we'll never see again. For you, do you miss running a club like Shabu? Do you miss all of that, or is it so much easier to be the guy who kind of walks in and?
1: I totally miss it, but my saying now is, if somebody offered me the keys to a brand new nightclub, yeah and they said it's yours david it's all paid for it's yours mm. i wouldn't take it because it's it's almost impossible to make it work now because you the, the climate is so different uh, it's so i mean the money is so different uh, the media is different the, the record companies are basically gone the whole industry is so fractured and so messed up in comparison to when we were coming up i mean radio was strong record companies were strong the songwriting was incredible. That decade of the '70s was there's so much there, and the record companies kept us going. You know, they'd support the touring artists. All those things came into play. Plus, we could wholesale music. A, a young person could support a nightclub like that three or four nights a week. Mm. And today, I mean, it's so expensive to do everything. Just to just to drive your car somewhere and then park it. Never mind get into the club and moving artists around the country with planes and this and that. It's just a whole different climate, so it's very, very challenging. The place to be if you're going to be in the promotion business is with big, big, large capacity places doing the you know the big touring acts. Otherwise, it's very, very challenging. So anybody that is in the club business today, I have the utmost respect for, and I try in every way through my production company to keep them going.
2: Uh, David Foster, it's been so great to talk to you. David Foster is the owner of Shabu Productions, the leader of the Mohegan Sun All-Stars, and his new recording, The Real Thing, under the name D.A. Foster, will be released. We'll see if he can still sing the way he sang with Muddy Waters back in the day.
8: So let the neighbors talk about it. I got a bad case Worse than the last one
3: You know, I'm I'm here, I'm not still sleeping.